If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where we ask a leading expert to answer your questions on one of history's biggest topics. Today's subject is early medieval Britain. Our expert is Dr Rory Naismith, and asking the questions is our content director, Dave Musgrove. I'm joined by Dr Rory Naismith, who's lecturer in the history of England before the Norman Conquest at Cambridge University, and the author of Early Medieval Britain, uh, circa 500 to year 1000, uh, and that's in the Cambridge History of Britain series. So um, uh, a good man to answer our questions, and actually the title of the book does slightly give away the answer to uh, to the first question, but uh, we will jump in anyway. Um, so Rory, thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Good stuff. Right, so we're going to jump into the first three. I've got a few questions which I'm going to lump together and uh, and you can give an answer throughout and that will set the scene for us. So we've got one from John Hull on Facebook. Uh, a basic question, is there a generally accepted definition of the early medieval time period and how does it fit within the larger medieval period? And as I said, your book title is Circa 500 to 1000, so perhaps that gives a, a hint to what we're talking about. Uh, Rob Kemp, 1996 on Instagram, wanted to know what was the key event during that whole period. And then Jessica Roberts on Facebook, um, who says, I know this may sound daft, don't don't worry, Jessica, it doesn't sound daft. This is a really good question. But um, how did uh, these people know they were medieval? Did did they see themselves as more modern than classical people? So a few questions there together, Rory, if you want to have a a go at uh, at giving us the the general synopsis of the the time period. I'll I'll see what I can do. Well, you, you already said that the book kind of gives away the answer to that first question about 
what is early medieval, at least my idea of what is what is early medieval, circa 500, circa 1000. Other scholars will, of course, differ. They might choose to go a little bit earlier, a little bit later. Um, and that will vary a lot more, especially if you go to other European countries where you're thinking about early medieval Italy or early medieval Germany or, or, or somewhere else. Most people, including in many parts of Europe, would, would broadly agree about putting the beginning of the early Middle Ages um, at the end of the, well, in the 5th century or the 6th century, basically around the end of the Roman Empire is the key thing. Um, and so this means that they think of the early Middle Ages as a domain of, of new kingdoms uh, and the transition from Roman to, um, to, to the English, the Britons, the Franks, the Goths, and so forth. That transition is one of the key themes that people think of for the early Middle Ages in, in all, all sorts of different places. Now, of course, there are all sorts of other ways to to cut the cake. Um, a lot of people in in recent decades think about late antiquity rather than early Middle Ages, and the point of that is that you span later Roman through to about six hundred, so three hundred to six hundred or thereabouts, and this helps focus on continuities in terms of culture, social history, um, some aspects of government as well, instead of big political breaks and new kingdoms and all that sort of thing. There's a lot less agreement about when the early Middle Ages end, um, about whether there should be just early and late or early, middle and late, um, or some other division altogether. In Britain, um, people often fasten on the Norman conquest of 1066 as an end point. Uh, it's got obvious and immediate consequences for England, but also in time it affects Scotland and Wales as well. Um, so important though this was, we can also think about other things like, for instance, the Viking invasions. And this brings us on to this nice question about uh, key events, um, which define which define the period. What are the most important ones? Well, uh, to some extent, it depends what kind of history you're thinking of, because um, not everything really works in terms of well-defined key events, like battles or, or something like that. So if you're thinking about Political cultural terms, you can make a strong argument for things like the 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 end of the Roman Empire at the beginning of the period and the Norman conquest at the end, the kind of bookend five hundred odd years of history in between. Both of those events, well, they're really more processes and events, but still fairly, fairly relatively concentrated ones, those both have clear, many-layered consequences. Um, so those make do make sense as as you know big headline events. Uh, but that still leaves an awful lot of time in between. You know, that's the same as the period between us and Henry VIII, and there's an awful lot that happened in those 500 years. Um, we might think about uh, the formation of kingdoms, um, which some of which would go on to become England and Scotland, though neither of these can really be tied to a single foundational moment in time. Uh, you might think about the beginning of the Viking raids as another moment that would resonate down through the centuries that followed in terms of warfare, settlement, evolution of those, those kings we just mentioned. Um, or you might think about a, a kind of pivotal moment that exemplifies bigger changes that have been going on in the background, like, for instance, the Battle of Brunenburg in 937. This is an unlocated place. No one knows where Brunenburg was, but it was probably somewhere in maybe... Northwest England. Um, others would differ on that. And that's where the English defeated uh, a big coalition of, um, of Irish and Scots and various others. And it cemented England uh, as the, the sort of powerhouse in the whole of, of Britain and Ireland at that point. And there are plenty of other changes that are just as important, but much less easily tied to 
particular moments, like the rebirth of towns, the spread of Christianity and monasticism, cultivation of vernacular literatures. And those are some of the themes that bring us to that last question about about medieval. Did people know they were medieval? Did they think they were more modern than classical peoples? Well, Medieval is is a term that was not used in the Middle Ages. Um, medieval just comes from medium ivum, Latin for middle age. Um, so it, it, it's it's not what they thought of themselves as being, except insofar as they thought they came between the, the sort of Christian end times and the, the birth of Christ. It was the middle in that sense, but it was not medieval in terms of ancient versus modern. And that's what this term means. It was created in the Renaissance. Medieval meant the time between antiquity and a now, which is implied to be better and more modern, with the Middle Ages being essentially historical flyover country. Um, that's not really the way I think most scholars or most other people would like to read the period now. Uh, medieval people sometimes did think of themselves as as very modern, very up-to-date, very much um, an advance on what had come before. But for instance, they they were very concerned with the idea that now they were the the, the Christian people who were not, not weighed down by paganism as the Romans had been. That was one big shift that they often highlighted. But there were lots of other ways, too, in which they, they did think of themselves as living in the here and now, not, not in some vaguely defined middle state. Excellent. Well, that, uh, that very full answer has, yes. uh, has, has posi- you positioned us chronologically really well. So we've got a good idea about what we're talking about now, hopefully. Um, uh, also, now I have, I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um, so what about geographically? So that takes on mm. to uh, a yep. very popular uh, search engine query, which is yes. what were the kingdoms and peoples of early medieval Britain? So can you take us on a, on a brief geographical tour of that? A good place to start is with the way the Venerable Bede, this great scholar who lived in the north of England in the the beginning of the 8th century, put things. He described in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People that there were five groups, well, five languages being spoken in Britain at that point. Latin, which was a special case, but then there were the English, uh, who lived in broadly what's now the territory of England, the Britons, who lived in what's now Wales, uh, southwest England, and also the, the what's now southwest Scotland going into northwest England. Um, then the the Scots, uh, who lived in western, southwestern Scotland, uh, and the Picts, who lived in the rest of what's now Scotland. So the, the major addition to that complement is when, in the 9th century, the Vikings come along and settle and take over some of those territories for themselves. That schematic is very helpful as a, a kind of starting point, but the actual political map was a lot more complicated than that. Generally, these peoples uh, were divided into lots of political units. It was actually quite quite rare, and only later on, that you start to have a whole kingdom of the English, a whole kingdom of the, the Scots, or whatever it might be. Broadly speaking, we're thinking of a number of smaller kingdoms like Mercia, Wessex, Northumbria for the English, Dalriada for, for the Scots, uh, Gwynedd, Strathclyde, Cornwall for the Britons, and, and lots of others. Um, these were often fighting one another, taking one another over, a sort of, it's a real political kaleidoscope. It's what, what John Milton in his History of the Britain, History of Britain in the 17th century called the Wars of Kites and Crows, these sort of endless little fights that that make it all both interesting and sometimes very complicated. Now, one consequence of this is that it's very important that we keep kingdoms and peoples distinct. Um, kingdoms did not always consist of one people. 
Lots of the English ones included a, a British, Britonic-speaking population. The laws of one West Saxon king called Ina from about the year 700 specified that there were different levels of compensation for whether you were paying uh, an Englishman or a Briton for, for various infractions. Um, and it was actually quite rare for there to be any kind of ethnic sense that all the English kings should band together against all the Britonic kings. And it was much more common for you to have, say, an English king joining forces with a, a Welsh Britonic king against another English kingdom. Um, so it's better in many ways to think of individual kingdoms and regions to get a better sense of the levels of power that had a more concrete meaning for people in the early Middle Ages. Finally, peoples is an even more slippery and dangerous term than, than these, these kingdoms and, and smaller units. Um, we nowadays inherit the medieval custom of using peoples as a bigger catch-all term for language or shared ideas, I'd stress ideas, not actualities, ideas of common history and descent. Um, but these were very much constructed, malleable traditions that, that stitched together a much more complicated actuality. Excellent. Um, now, I notice in that answer you use the word English when you're talking mm. about um, the, the people uh, in England. Um, th that brings up the question of Anglo-Saxon. Uh, as Some people uh, would describe this period as the Anglo-Saxon period, perhaps, mm. when they're talking about uh, th that specific area and, and time. Where do you stand on that? It's quite a contentious term and issue. It is a contentious term and issue. My, my sense is that it's... <sighs> It's got to be understood with a full view of the long history of, of this term, which goes back to the period itself. It goes back to the early Middle Ages. In fact, for all that we think about it as a sort of quintessentially English insular term, it originated in mainland Europe. It was an exonym. It was a term created by other people to describe the, the English. It means something like the English Saxons as opposed to the continental Saxons. And that's the way in which it's used from the first attestations around the year 800. Now, in the late 9th century, in the time of Alfred the Great, who was king from 871 to 899, um, Anglo-Saxon started to be used among the English themselves to describe the composite kingdom that Alfred ruled over. This included some parts that thought of themselves as having been settled by Saxons in previous centuries, according to Bede's rather schematic idea of certain specific peoples coming over and then setting up shop in England. The Saxons were one of those, another was the English, the Angles, and so Anglo-Saxon implied those two coming together. Uh, Alfred used this. Um, some of his successors used this in the early 10th century alongside terminology like English or Saxon on their own, and eventually Anglo-Saxon lost out to, um, to English. And so then it, it more or less disappears off the radar for 500 years. Then uh, we get into the period which is really much more problematic and which leads to the, the connotations of Anglo-Saxon that are, are more dangerous nowadays. And this is when it's resurrected in the early modern and modern periods. It first appears again in the 16th century to describe the language of the early medieval English, what we'd now call Old English, the ancestor of modern English. Um, quite why they decide to start calling it Anglo-Saxon is not completely clear. Might be because of the influence of some texts that were that originated in the time of Alfred and became popular in the, the late, 60, late 1500s. Could also be part of a wish to try and sound deliberately archaic to make this sound very, very old and portentous. Um, but in either case, that, that gets established in the 16th, 17th centuries. From the early 1700s, people also start using Anglo-Saxon to mean the people and the period. 
And this is at a, at a time when pre-conquest Anglo-Saxon English um, history was beginning to be a, beginning to be seen as a kind of political garden of Eden in England. This was the 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 the, the source of English liberty, of parliamentary democracy, of the original successful colonial settlement. Um, these were all things that, that that were tied to the Anglo-Saxon period. And so it denoted a very deep sense of English identity, cultural, institutional continuity that was even carried over into the incipient United States. Um, and Thomas Jefferson at one point suggested that they could have put Henniest and Horsa, these two early Anglo-Saxon um, founding figures, these early kings of the 5th century, that they would have been figures to put on the seal of the United States, this sort of new farmer republic, as he imagined it. And so it's a very integral part of both American and British history. Now, the problem is that these ingredients lead, especially in the 19th century, to Anglo-Saxon taking on racial connotations. English superiority became tied to descent and biology. And in the US in particular, this came to mean uh, white Northern Europeans. Anglo-Saxons as opposed to everyone else. Um, it was heavily used in that sense by the KKK and all sorts of other deeply unpleasant groups. Those racial connotations have mostly been sidelined in the UK nowadays, although there are still some hardcore extremists who cling to that side of the term. But and it's and in Britain nowadays, it's generally understood as as you just as you just applied it in the same way as say Roman or Victorian. It just describes a period. Whereas if you were to fly across the Atlantic, um, which is not very easy at the moment, I know, um, to North America, you'd find that Anglo-Saxon is there still mostly associated with the absolutely abhorrent language of bigoted white supremacists, and is a cause of real hurt and alienation in in, uh, the African-American community, all sorts of other groups. So there's an obvious tension here. You really do need to stop and think very hard if you're using language that is seen as exclusionary and racist anywhere in the English-speaking world. But at the same time, it's not quite satisfactory to give up on a term as being lost to these, these extremist groups who will carry on using and abusing it regardless of what we do. Um, so in my view, it would be better to, to use it, but sparingly, and to use to do so alongside other terms that make it clear that this is a, a historical term, not one with racial connotations, basically to undermine that sense in which it is still sometimes used, and for historians to do all they can to try and take control of the narrative around it. Building from that that very interesting answer, this is a like a much discussed uh, point that Shane Bat on Facebook asked was was there a Saxon Saxon invasion or simply a peaceful migration of the Saxons and other Germanic tribes? So that takes us back to the to the start of the story you were just talking about, I guess. Yes. Um- the short answer is that there was not a single invasion. They didn't even think there was a single invasion in the the uh, the early Middle Ages itself. They they did, on the other hand, think in terms of discrete units that had already been there in embryonic form in uh, in mainland Northern Europe, coming over in more or less ready-made, oven-ready form, setting up shop at various places in England, and then founding very quickly. The, the units that were already there in the 8th and 9th centuries. Now, what this suggests is that the people like Bede and the writers of the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in the 800s were looking back and trying to see in this early period the roots of their own 
current times. They were trying to, to fit the stories of people coming over and settling into the current political uh, political geography that they saw, the current situation that they, 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 they were living in. Um, the problem is that there are really very, very few sources from the, the period itself of the 5th and 6th century. So we need to treat those later sources as basically sort of sort of legendary they're they're constructing something new out of the early period um we can turn to the archaeological record um this is very extensive uh for the fifth and sixth centuries unlike the historical one uh we've got lots of new different ways of burying people that appear these are marked by weapons and accoutrements like brooches and buckles which are released to those of the late roman army and this is one of the clues to what's actually going on in the fifth and sixth century there there probably was a significant degree of migration from the northern part of mainland europe um, but this was off. This had begun before the end of Roman rule, in the context of people who were serving in the Roman army, units of the Roman army that then came to identify with uh, sort of barbarian culture, as they as they might have called it. Um, and uh, in in and then some people who would come over after the end of Roman rule. Um, one of the stories that was preserved into later times was that these these groups were invited in as mercenaries. That is plausible, certainly, but it was most likely not a matter of just one single group who came in. It was a lot more granular than that. Um, we also need to reckon with a lot of change within Britain itself. So these groups who were coming in from the the, the, the areas outside the Roman Empire would probably not have arrived already thinking they were English or or anything else like that, these group identities would then most likely have been forged anew and created out of a few kernels of tradition in England itself. Um, so these are new entities formed by people coming in from diverse backgrounds. There's also a lot of acculturation as people who'd been in Britain already, um, Britons and others, took on the language and identity of the incomers. And indeed, there's very good um, scientific evidence now, lead isotope evidence, genetic evidence, which shows that there was a surprising degree of movement from not just across the North Sea, but also from west to east within Britain. So this is this is a re hugely interesting period, but it's not one which saw just a single Saxon invasion, nor was it necessarily all peaceful. We just need to think of lots of different individual strands coming together, different small, different communities, different groups working on smaller levels that were then spliced together into a, a larger whole in the, the myth-making, the historiography of later times. So uh, a complicated picture, clearly. Yeah. And, and yeah, further complicated by uh, the, uh, the the incoming of the Viking mm. um, peoples, the Scandinavians from the late eighth century onwards, uh, which you've mentioned already. And we've got a question here from Adam Hillhouse on that, which uh, asks: Can you explain the differences in the Norse or Viking legacy in places around uh, what is now the UK, such as that scene in Shetland, Caithness, Wirral, and East Anglia? So um, he's identified uh, different different uh, mm. sort of senses of, of Vikingness across those areas. What's what's your answer to that? I'd say that we can think of this, this question in three main ways, three different main kinds of legacy. The first is what you might call historical legacy, in that there were Viking polities, 
kingdoms, earldoms, and so forth, uh, and societies with distinct customs and practices of their own. Um, but these te- these mostly didn't last that long as separate political entities, at least in England. So we mentioned East Anglia and the Wirral, for instance. These are both taken over by the English in the, the early to mid-900s. But the impact on social organisation can be seen for much longer. It comes through in things like Doomsday Book, the the political entities that were set up by the Vikings did last longer in what's now Scotland, um, though there are quite limited sources on how those actually worked and what society and government looked like within, say, Viking, Orkney, Viking, Shetland. Um, we have some later sagas, but those are a little bit, little bit dicey for what's actually going on in the 9th and 10th centuries. The second main way we can look at the legacy is archaeological, um, which includes thinking about the economic and social impact of the economic, yes, economic and social impact of the Vikings. Um, there are a lot of Scandinavian or Anglo-Scandinavian brooches that have been found in East Anglia, many of which would have been worn by women. So that's actually a very good proxy for the idea that there were a lot of women who came in with the Vikings. It's not just a matter of hairy, scary warriors who turn up and, and attack everyone. They were also bringing families with them from Scandinavia to set up shop in, in Britain. Archaeology is particularly important in uh, in thinking about the Vikings in Scotland. There are wonderful burials and settlement sites from places like Buckhoy, Gurness, Colonsay, various others. And because of the, the strength of that archaeological evidence and the weakness of the historical sources, we tend to think about the, the, the effects of the Vikings in Scotland in different terms. There's not so much of a focus on fighting and warfare, which we know about from the historical texts, there's more of an emphasis on the Vikings as people who settle and build and leave a a footprint in the local landscape. The third and final way we can think about the Viking legacy is linguistic. Um, There are a lot of Old Norse words borrowed into English, um, and the, the prominence of those is helped by the fact that one of the dialects that was most affected by Old Norse that came from the Midlands actually became very influential in the later Middle Ages because there was a lot of migration from the Midlands into London. So that became dominant in the capital and in various other important parts of the country. Um, A lot of these Old Norse words are ones that we use every day. Skirt, window, law, egg. Uh, These are very basic words uh, which show the close engagement that there was between the two groups and the two languages that they were speaking. Uh, Things are a bit more complicated when we think about Ireland and what's now Scotland, because Scots Gaelic and Irish are much less similar to Old Norse. Both Old English and Old Norse are what's called Germanic languages, so they're related to each other. And it may well have been, at least in the ninth century, that the speakers could kind of understand each other with a little bit of sort of hand-waving and and sort of slow repetition phrases, that kind of thing. Um, So we can look at borrowings in the language, we can look at place names. Um, These do survive in in Scotland as well, in Hebrides, in Orkney, in Shetland, as well as in parts of England. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There are also examples we have of people selling themselves into servitude, which sounds absolutely horrific, but again, it wasn't necessarily seen as all that bad. It was something that people saw as actually quite a a sort of bargaining chip. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford. 
Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire, or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So uh, you've you've answered there um, very fully, and you've also um, tackled a couple of questions that were probably coming later about languages uh, from James mm. Overmuller on Facebook and Carlo Dotti on Twitter, who wanted mm. to know about uh, similarities of language. So I think we'll, unless you wanted to add any more on the language point, we'll, we'll skip over those um, mm. to to uh, religion. We've got some questions on mm. religion. Um, let's 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 put together a few. So we've got Tessa Kate here who wants to know what were their superstitions, what was considered a good life for the majority of people, um, and Paul on Facebook wanted to know about the Anglo-Saxon gods specifically. Mm. Yes. Uh, did he, His question was, did they originally have different qualities which then became taken over by their Roman equivalents? And then mm. Bo, Bo Craver yeah. on Twitter asked, were most people Christian? So let's, let's give us a sense about religion and superstition in the period. I'll do my best. So thinking about superstitions, good life, most people in, in Britain in this period would have been peasant farmers, people who spent their lives trying to grow stuff out of the soil, raise animals on the land, and they probably worried most about getting through the coming seasons ahead. They would have worked around the agricultural calendar, so a good life for them would have meant having enough food and having to do, hopefully, a bit less work for it. Um, Elite churchmen, who were the most articulate element of society in this period, they wrote down what we have in texts like Bede's Ecclesiastical History. Um, These figures yearned after uh, a more godly society and for signs of divine approval, like a lack of attack and discord. That was a sign of things going well for them, while the aristocrats, who were living in big halls and fighting and, you know... uh, eating luxury foods, all that sort of thing, uh, they would have perhaps focused more on loyalty and success in familial and military spheres. Um, As for this this thing about the Saxon gods, uh, we don't actually know all that much about them. Um, They, of course, are preserved in some place names and in the days of the week, um, but the days of the week... um, context is is really part of a widespread tradition in a number of Germanic languages all over Europe of mapping native deities onto Roman ones. Um, so, for instance, we talk about Wednesday in English, Woden's Day, whereas in French you talk about um, Mercredi, um, which is the day of Mercury. And that's because in the late antique period, people thought that, that 
Woden, Odin, uh, mapped most closely onto the Roman god Mercury, who was kind of sort of mercurial, changeable to do with things like poetry and getting randomly uh, impassioned and angry about things. Um, but that's the basic problem. We mostly know about the, the Saxon gods through later Christian learned interpretations that tended to flatten and homogenize earlier religious beliefs. Um, so they may well have had quite different qualities. Uh, they may indeed have only been one part of a, a, a much larger, more complicated religious framework that also invoked all sorts of other kinds of unseen being. But we really don't know very much at all about that nowadays, unfortunately. And last of all, this question about most people being Christians. Um, yes, they were. We know that the conversion of um, probably all of Britain, was at least theoretically complete by the 7th century, the end of the 7th century, with the important exception of Scandinavian settlers who came in during the 9th century and after, and even they were fairly quickly converted as well. Uh, but they weren't all very assiduous Christians. Uh, there was an Anglo-Saxon, an English um, writer called Alfrich around the year 1000 who complained that not everyone would go to church as often as he liked and there also weren't nearly as many churches in the landscape as there are nowadays. You didn't have all little parish churches, you had a few bigger churches so people wouldn't have thought of these as quite such a, a dominant visible presence in their in their immediate surroundings. Okay, um, we've answered some pretty big questions there. Mm. Some some yeah. some big topics. Let's let's have a look at some uh, social and economic questions. Mm. Um, Helen Russell on Facebook uh, asks one. Uh, her question is: Did it really smell that bad? Did people know <laughs> if they were stinky? Um, I, so I assume she's she's wondering whether people themselves were were hygienic. What's 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 the what's the take on that? Well, I'd say it probably wasn't notably more smelly than most other historical periods um, until very modern times. That, um, all right, we know that there was fairly rudimentary sewage, that um, sewer systems, we know that hygiene wasn't terribly good. But at the same time, uh, we know that, you know, Georgian, Georgian London or uh, Rome in the Roman period or all sorts of other times and places were, were similarly um, poorly supplied with with hygiene, at least in for some of their some parts of their society. So I don't think the the early Middle Ages were particularly bad in that in that particular way. It's not to say they were good. They would still have smelled. They would still have been unpleasant. They just weren't all that worse than other times and periods. Why do we think about them being particularly smelly and nasty? That could partly be because of the prominence of the Jorvik Viking Center. If you go there, you can you can experience firsthand reconstructed. Um, Anglo-Saxon Viking smells. Um, they even have on display the, the so-called Lloyd's Bank coprolite, a calcified poo that's absolutely enormous and that shows its maker was full of intestinal worms. So it gives you a lovely earthy sense of society. It's probably also down to the influence of, um, of film and television, that uh, there's a strong sense for the last sort of 50 odd years that the Middle Ages is kind of gritty and grimy and it's a place where people get down and dirty and the the sort of roughness of the society is therefore visually reflected in the the dirt and roughness of the people who live there. So I think that that subtly has affected the way in which perhaps many of us picture the period. I think you make a really good point about Yorvik's smell-o-vision experience there. <laughs> it's certainly one that's uh, that stuck with me since uh, since I went there as a child. So Same yeah, here. I'm sure that's Same here. <laughs> absolutely. 
Um, well, this is a good question from Carl O'Doherty on Twitter, mm. who, who asked, what made them laugh? Was there any difference in modern humour? So what sources have we got to inform us about that? I suppose there's the riddles for starters, mm. perhaps? Yeah, I was going to mention the riddles. It's it's a very difficult question because it's so culturally specific, what makes people laugh. It's, it's hard to translate comedy even nowadays. Um, we know that in the early Middle Ages, people liked puns. We've got some good examples of puns that survive, many of which are really quite banal. So the, the classic example example, in fact, relates to this, this term we've already talked about already, the, the, the English, the Angli, as they were called in Latin. And there are, are various texts which talk about this story of Pope Gregory the Great, Pope between 590 and 604, who organised the, the mission to the English in, in the end of the, at the end of the 6th century, and how he at one stage saw in the slave market a group of Angli, English um, men, who English boys who were on sale as slaves, um, and he thought they were so handsome and so so great that they were actually angrily they were they were angels. Um, and then there are a whole series of of of, um, of puns that follow on from this. Um, that the names of their their kingdom and their their rulers are all tied to these Latin religious terms. Um, some other puns aren't quite so bad. So. We talk about Ethelred the Unready nowadays, this king who was supposedly a bit rubbish at the end of the 10th century and who was defeated and uh, eventually forced out of his kingdom by the Vikings. He is known as the Unready because uh, he had this nickname Unred applied to him in the in the, the 10th, 11th centuries. Um, this means ill-advised, whereas his own name Ethelred means noble advice. So it's a, a slightly more subtle um, critique on what his name means, you know, the, the well-advised king who is actually ill-advised. So that's one side of their humour. Other kinds of what other things they found funny could also be very crude. There's a wonderful uh, text called, um, called, well, it's just a series of what's called colloquies. Uh, these are imaginary conversations that were written to help train young monks in Latin. And there's a group of these that are written by, there's a written by a character called Alfrich Bata, who was a teacher at, um, at Canterbury at the beginning of the 11th century. And these, these colloquies are absolutely full of toilet humour, um, all kinds of, um, you know, really quite funny stuff in a, in a fairly lowbrow way. Uh, other lowbrow things might include some miracle stories. There's a great one about a peasant who is trying to, st- to take some land from a monastery and who gets his comeuppance by accidentally cutting off his own head with a scythe. Um, and then we have the the Old English riddles. Again, these sound very bawdy and earthy. These are based on sexual double entendres that uh, you 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 know get a, a riddle about, say, something that hangs by a man's thigh with all sorts of suggestive terminology. But then the idea is that the real solution that you're meant to see as a, a sort of proper virtuous person is is actually a key. Um, so these are really as much a, a challenge as a, a set of a set of Kind of kind of jokes or riddles. In other words, the sense of humour is really quite quite hard to grasp, but they could sometimes be be surprisingly sharp, and they could be good at kind of subtly poking fun at one another in an almost satirical kind of way. So a nice example of this is with a character called Aldhelm of Malmesbury, who wrote um, some of the first Latin texts in England at the beginning of the 700s. He wrote a letter at one point to a character called Heafrith, who was thinking of going from England to Ireland to get uh, a training in Latin. And he was trying to persuade him to stay at home and he could get just as good a training here. And in this letter, he uses the letter P to begin, I think it's the first 15 or 16 words of of this text. So it's pa, 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 like that. It's a sort of 
bizarre thing when you read it. And it's been suggested that that might be because contemporary speakers of Irish actually weren't used to using the letter P, that they would often trip over it and use another letter instead. So Aldhelm is trying quite cleverly to show both how good his Latin is and also what problems there'll be if, if this guy does go to Ireland. Okay, so so fans of puns and punning would have been belly laughing, but uh, but maybe some of these other aspects might not have translated not really. quite so well. I'm, af- I'm afraid not. Um, so uh, you mentioned slavery just in that last answer, yes. and that, that brings on a, another question which mm. um, it, from McLeod Skinner on Twitter, who yes. says that he's read the term not free to describe yeah. the status of certain people. Mm. Uh, he wants to know what, if any, is the difference between slaves and not free? So I suppose that, that leads to a, a slightly larger question. What was the nature of slavery in this period? Yeah, those are both big, very interesting, but again, slightly slightly tricky questions. Um, the reason people tend to prefer the term unfree instead of slave is because there's, a, there's you, uh, an implied contrast here with the Roman and ancient world. Um, slaves are generally thought of as being a part of the Roman world, but less so in the early Middle Ages. Now, there were plenty of people who were called slaves in early medieval Britain. Um, Servus in Latin. This is where we get serf from in modern English. Um, whereas in Old English, they had terms like theo or weach. Uh, weach is actually the, the word that gives rise to Welsh and Wales, which gives you some clue to the, the social dynamics of slavery in, in early medieval England, that a lot of their slaves were, were people perhaps of British extraction. Um, but there are, uh, are three main reasons why I think that that uh, unfreedom and slavery can be helpfully kept distinct. Uh, and the first is that they operated in a in early medieval slavery operation in a very different way to Roman slavery. Uh, one thinks of you know you think of gladiator, you think of uh, you know I Claudius, all these things where you you have a, a sort of mass of household servants, you have chain gangs of slaves on big estates, whereas most early medieval slaves were were agricultural workers. Um, and they didn't operate in those big gangs on big estates in the same way as their Roman predecessors had done. And even the Roman world, that wasn't universal at all. Second, servitude had different connotations in the early Middle Ages. Everyone thought of themselves in terms of service to someone, but it was a question of what you did and on what terms that mattered. So service to the king in some honourable capacity like like fighting or uh, waiting on him in his household was one component of elite secular status of being recognised as what was called a thane in, in early medieval England. But having to do heavy agricultural labour meant something else altogether. Um, the third thing is that that status was negotiable. Um, unfreedom meant lots. Of, well, unfreedom meant lots of different things. There were plenty of outright slaves who had no say over their own time or their own person, their relationships with other people. But beyond that, there was a very complicated sliding scale of partial degrees of freedom and partial degrees of servitude. So that actually a lot of the people that we might think of as, as slaves were actually, would not necessarily have called themselves slaves and did not spend all their time slaves. They were sort of part-time slaves. Um, so they might have to do servile labor, say, two days a week, um, but work for themselves on the others. Um, and how many days a week you had to do, where you had to do it, how much flexibility you had, that was as, as important as having to do something at all, if that makes sense. There are also examples we have of people selling themselves into servitude, which sounds absolutely horrific. But again, it wasn't necessarily seen as all that bad. It was something that people saw as actually quite a, a sort of bargaining chip. 
Um, the problem here is that laws and other texts written among elites, and especially elites working in a Roman tradition, tended to deal in absolutes, um, one of which was that, that selling yourself into slavery was uh, a bad, bad thing. But the records dealing with actual people on actual estates, actual communities, show a much more nuanced picture where um, freedom was a, a kind of bargaining tool. You mentioned agriculture mm. there um, and, ag- and sort of uh, slavery, uh, uh, slaves working in, in an agri- agricultural context. Um, agro-biodiverse, one of our regular mm. um, questioners <laughs> in this strand, thanks very much for your questions, asked what were the main agricultural crops? And he wants to know, did they get their five helpings of fruit and veg? Um, yes they they did probably get their five helpings of fruit and veg we know that they they grew um they grew certain kinds of wheat spelt barley oats um, a lot of different grains really Uh, we know that they also grew a lot of vegetables we know that uh, beans and pulses were popular Uh, we know that um if you were a, a fairly humble person like one of our unfree uh, slaves or pseudo slaves or even a, a, a peasant who was a little bit doing a little bit better, you'd probably still be mostly eating um, bread and vegetable based um, meals. Um, you'd be having um, a lot of pottage, kind of porridge like thing. You'd be having a lot of um, a lot of vegetable based things. You'd also be having a lot of dairy, um, a lot of cheese, a lot of milk, um, fruit. There is a lot of fruit as well. Um, though the range of fruits that they had on offer would, of course, have been down to what was in season, and the range was smaller than what we'd be used to nowadays. So apples, for instance, were very important. In fact, the the reason that we think of um, the apple being in the Garden of Eden is because in uh, English translations of the the, the story of the, the temptation of Adam and Eve, um, it just says fruit in the the original text in in um, in in uh, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Um, but in in Old English, they thought about the generic term for fruit being apfel. Um, you know, that was the standard fruit, the bog standard fruit. So the fact that their standard fruit was an apple means now we think of it being an apple. Um, so yes, a lot of fruit and veg, um, a lot less meat, some meat, um, but it was more of a, a special occasion food. That's an excellent piece of apple trivia there. I was not aware <laughs> of that. Um, uh, Andrea Holmes on Twitter wants to know about mobility. Um, mm. Her question is, how itinerant were people really? How does the idea of people living most of their lives in one village fit with the levels of pilgrimage, migration and movement that were going on? That's a really, really good question because it wasn't quite as as um, rigid and uh, you know hidebound as as. I think sometimes the popular perception is that a lot of people, even fairly fairly humble people, would have moved around. Uh, they would have done so if you were, say, getting married or you wanted to take up some vacant lands. That doesn't necessarily say you're going to go all the way from like London to York or something like that, but you might move up to, say, 10 or 15 miles. And if you do that multiple times, you, know, you imagine a few generations is going on, that can really take people over quite a quite a substantial distance. Um, people would also have moved around to go to periodic uh, meetings within their own area, within their shire, within their hundred, hundred being a sort of subunit of a shire, about maybe 10, 20 of them in a shire. Uh, we also know that people moved around because their lords might make them do it. We know from documents preserved at the Monastery of Ely in Cambridgeshire that some um, some slaves, some uh, swine herds were moving over sometimes 60, 70 miles uh, to, to do what their lords were telling them to do. 
And yes, as you as you mentioned, we know about pilgrimage. We know that a lot of people, and again, all stations of people, were going on pilgrimage as far as Rome, sometimes Jerusalem. If you were a high-status person, um, a priest, a bishop, a king, an aristocrat, mobility would have been a, a key part of your life. You probably would have been on the move a large proportion of the time. There's a, an example of a manuscript that's now in Durham, uh, which was written by a member of the, the, the monastic community of St. Cuthbert, which was based uh, eventually at Durham, Chester Street, other places in the far north of England. But the, a note in this manuscript says that he actually wrote part of his text while he was living in a tent um, at Woodyates in Dorset, presumably while he was on a visit to one of these big royal meetings with the head of his own community. So yes, people did move around, um, but the degree of that movement was much higher as you went further up the social food chain. Okay, we've got a couple of questions here from our Instagram followers, mm. which are which are quite close to your some of your your, your key research interests. So, uh, franchise five hundred five uh, wants to know what currency was used in various places, and then Steve seventy seven HPP Kins asks how was family wealth stored as they had no banks. So, uh, so tell us about money, wealth, and currency. Okay, well, in terms of currencies that people used, if you were in uh, in England, before about the um, later 7th century, you would have thought primarily in terms of what were called gold shillings, um, which were divided up into a number of what were called shatters. These were probably uh, basically little tiny lumps of gold, but not coins. Later on, people kept on using the shilling, but it consisted of varying numbers of pennies depending on where you are. Um, so sometimes four, sometimes five, eventually 12 later on. Um, that model of 12 pennies to a shilling, 20 shillings to a pound actually comes from mainland Europe. It comes from the Frankish area in the 8th century, and it starts to be used in England about the year 1000. Um, even though, again, we think of it as a kind of quintessentially English thing, it's actually a European import if you go back far enough. Um, now, people did use coins. They used gold coins at first, later on silver ones. Um, but you would probably have thought much more in terms of money than you would have used physical pieces of money. And that's because the, the coins of the early Middle Ages were very valuable. Um, one silver penny probably had the buying power of maybe 10, 20, 30 pounds nowadays. So spending a penny was really quite a big deal, not something to be done lightly. And a gold piece would have been worth probably several hundred pounds in one coin. So these are not the kind of thing that you're going to be using for all your day-to-day -day needs. Most people probably would have used them sometimes. Some people would have used them a lot if they were dealing in certain areas, but they were far from universal. So just as often as you'd use coin, you'd be exchanging, say, cattle or grain, but you might think of them as being worth so many pennies or shillings or whatever. Now, we talked about uh, stores of wealth, hoarding wealth when you don't have banks. Very, very good point. How do you do that? Well, part of the answer is that you, you would invest a lot of it. You would have as much land and agricultural sort of resources as you could. So you might you know, invest in more cattle, more sheep, other things like that. If you actually do have coins, the other option that's open to you is simply to bury them. You'd go out into a field, into your, your preferred spot, and, and hide them until you needed them again. And there are lots and lots of these hoards that have been found, the Watlington hoard of um, Alfredian coins from uh, a few years ago, the Lenborough hoard of 11th century coins from a few years before that. The Cuerdale hoard is the biggest ever found. That came to light in Lancashire in 1840 and consisted of about 40, 50 kilos of silver altogether. 
Um, so you you could put together quite a nice nest egg and then bury that in the ground. You just needed to remember where it was and hope that nobody else would turn up and find it. And in terms of the understanding of currency and coinage, does the answer you've just given, does that apply uniformly across Britain or, or, or are you talking more specifically about what happened in, in what's now England? That's a good point, actually. That was thinking primarily about England. If you were in what's now, say, Wales, people had even fewer coins around. Um, so they would have thought much more in terms of these these other way, other forms of value. How many cows is this worth? Uh, in Ireland, early medieval Ireland, people thought in terms of not just how many cows things were worth, but how many slaves were things worth. Those were the, the units that people thought of for, for, for value, but they could apply them to lots of things. So you might rather bizarrely sometimes think of a piece of silver worth so many slaves, for instance. We know that was sometimes the, the approach in Ireland. Uh, in Wales, you've got some wonderful examples of um, of charters which talk about um, hawks and land and other objects that are worth sometimes so many pounds by weight in, in gold or silver, but also so many cows. So people had not just one sense of money and value, but several that were tied to sometimes prestige products like gold and silver, but also to the kinds of kinds of item and commodity that all kinds of different sections of society would have had access to, whether you were a major landowner with lots of cattle or a fairly humble person with just a few. Now, you mentioned an earlier answer, um, some of those law codes that suggested that uh, certain people would have a, 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 had different punishments for different crimes, depending on, uh, on, on who they were. Um, leads into a question from Lucianne Barrett here on Instagram, which was, how were criminals convicted with no police? Which is quite an interesting question, um, one that uh, was probably quite hard to, to get into. But uh, what's, what's, what's the situation with crime and justice? That's a really, really good question. It's also another... Uh slightly, well, it's one where the answer is in some ways not that impressive. Essentially that societies would self-police themselves, which means that there was a degree of violence, what we'd call vigilantism, or at least the, the lingering threat of it. Justice depended on a notion of open discourse, consensus. That is to say, people meeting to thrash out agreements. So imagine a kind of parish council, except more or less everyone in the parish would turn up in any dispute they'd have, would need to be aired and and hopefully resolved in that setting. Um, so this means that in terms of penalties and punishments, there's an emphasis on compensation um, because paying someone was in many ways the most agreeable and sort of peaceful way of resolving things. Uh, and this this didn't necessarily mean that there were no prisons, that there were no um, no, no use of capital punishment. Those things did sometimes apply, um, but compensation had the advantage of sort of saving face and trying to to halt any kind of further dispute. And that was what this system was designed mainly to do. It was about preserving as much peace, goodwill, consensus as you could. Um, if you think that sounds like it might not work, you'd be right. Often it didn't work. Um, there are lots of examples we have of uh, cases, legal cases, that rumbled on and on because of the difficulty of bringing people to justice, especially powerful people to justice. Um, a lot depended on having the right amount of support in your local area, um, of having people who were willing to stand up in court and swear that you and your version of events were reliable. And if you could get enough people to do that, then you were basically able to get away with almost anything. You had to do something really heinous for that support to, to wither away. Um, another difficulty is that 
there was no where it was when crimes had no obvious perpetrator. You didn't have a, a you know a brother CAD file wandering around solving these crimes generally. Um, so if there was a, a so-called secret crime committed, like you stole something or you you killed someone in secret, that was seen as actually a much bigger, scarier threat to the community because normally if you killed someone but everyone knew about it, that was obviously not good, but you could just pay compensation. You might need to go into sort of penal servitude to pay off that debt, but still there was a recognised way of doing things. Whereas with um, secret killing, if they found out who'd actually done it, that carried a much more severe penalty, as did theft. Stealing stuff, trying to get away with doing something by subterfuge was seen as much, much more serious. So again, theft carried a death penalty often, in at least in early medieval England, whereas just taking something uh, you know, what in full view of everyone was actually much less serious. Again, that required just just settlement. Um, this is actually the difference between killing and murder in um, early medieval law. Murder, morph, was one of these these crimes that was secret and extra scary. Um, so there were ways of making things work, but they weren't always terribly effective. Is the short answer. Okay, last question. We, we've almost got to the end. This is a, a slightly more fun one. Mm. Um, uh, so this is from Louisa, who asks, if I, uh, and she describes herself as a middle-class educated woman, were dropped into the period by a time-travelling alien, what should I do to survive? Could I get a job? How should I blend in? Now, Louisa there hasn't given us much to go on in terms of when and where. I guess that your answer might be quite different if it was 500 AD in, in southern England and 1000 AD in northern Scotland. You'll have to pick a time, but I suppose it does allow us to think about um, uh, the women's experience in, in this period, which we haven't talked about very much um, uh, in, this, in, in this conversation. So perhaps that's uh, a place to, to chat about as well. What, uh, what would have happened would have varied a bit depending on where you were in early medieval Britain, that's true. But on the whole, women's autonomy was pretty limited, unfortunately. There are examples of women we know about who held property, who acted on their own account in in legal situations, in courts, Um, but most of them did so in their capacity as a widow, which is to say as, um, as, as a representative of their husband's property, estates and rights and all that sort of thing. Uh, So one answer on how you would get on and blend in would be to get married. Um, That's not the only option. Um, Educated elite women in particular had the option of entering a nunnery or taking on a life of religious devotion within a rich household. Um, Unfortunately, the possibilities for women who operated on their own were really quite limited as far as we can see. Um, There are only very few examples of women who ruled in their own right um, as, as a a queen or or similar. There's the famous case of Athelflaed, the Lady of the Mercians, uh, who led the the armies of the West Midlands to victory over the Vikings at various battles in the early 900s. But even she had got into that position as the the wife and then the widow of the the ealdorman, the leader of the Mercians in earlier years. Um, so if you want to get on as an independent woman. Uh, my advice would be to capitalize on your your knowledge of future times to wow the early medieval people and get a reputation as a a saint with divine inspiration. I think that would have set you up very well. That was Rory Naismith. His book, Early Medieval Britain, is published now by Cambridge University Press. 
We've got plenty more on medieval history, including articles on the Black Death and the history behind the new film The Green Knight on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner Hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.